Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Coming soon. Another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of February, we're honoring none other than the late and great zombie godfather himself, George A. Romero. And today's episode highlights Romero's horror anthology film, Creepshow, in which George Romero directed five individual tales of terror written by none other than Stephen King himself, with each tale exploring different horror subgenres with a strong variety of horrifying creativity, humor, and stellar practical effects making Creepshow a timeless anthology. And joining me to break down these ghoulish tales is freelance writer Patrick Brennan, who's written for sites such as KillerHorrorCritic.com, Rue Morgue, and Dread Central. Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. It's uh, it's great to have another fellow killer horror critic writer on to talk horror today. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's great writing for the site. It's you're actually the first writer um, from the site that I think I've actually seen in person at this point. Uh, Matt, who runs KillerHorrorCritic.com, said the same thing. It was just like kind of getting to know people that are behind the avatars that we spend so much time talking one another on during uh, on Twitter or whatnot or email. And, yeah, it's great kind of just like getting to know people, you know, past, uh, hey, I like this movie, you like that movie, and then getting to have people on the podcast, you know, you get to kind of dig a little deeper into the reasons why they like certain movies or kind of what about a specific movie maybe kind of resonates with them based on their life experiences or other things that kind of just get to know people a little bit better, you know? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> but uh, you picked George Romero's anthology horror film Creepshow for us to talk about today. I did. But before we get into Creepshow, which I'm really excited to because that was the first time watch for me, I'm interested in kind of just like hearing your Romero origin story. Do you remember your first introduction to uh, his work? Yeah. Um, so my, my mom was kind of like my first horror guru. She was uh, super into horror when I was growing up. And I, I would uh, kind of sneak her her tapes from her, her bedroom and, and watch them. I remember seeing... Uh, <laughs> Um, A Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and Friday the 13th and all those movies way too early. But for some reason, the one that she was always dead set that I, I wasn't allowed to watch was uh, Night of the Living Dead. And I, I never, I didn't know why, 
but of course it just gave it this whole allure that I couldn't pass up. Um, and then I, it was actually much, much later in life. I think I was maybe, uh, how old was I? Maybe like 16 or 17 when I finally sat down to watch it. I mean, it blew my mind on a lot of different levels and but I still couldn't figure out why I was allowed to watch, you know, Freddy Krueger slice and dice people, but not, I, I don't know. I think it was just like the sheep guts or whatever that were used, but, um, Basically, my, my intro to George A. Romero was him being this forbidden person that I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't watch. Night of the Living Dead was my first exposure to his work as well. And it was one of those things where it was like I was way too young and it was just on TV. Yeah. But considering I was so young, I was probably like, I don't know, seven or nine or something like that. It was on TV, but I didn't have any context for what I was seeing. really. Yeah. So... It was just kind of like, oh, this is scary because I don't understand what's happening. And then, like you said, in revisiting it later in life when I was around probably 16 or something, kind of getting more and more of an appreciation for horror movies and returning to it with context and learning about Romero more and about his filmography and all these different um, other elements, it kind of just gave me like a new appreciation for not only that movie, but just kind of like his body of work in general. Um, And it it really is interesting seeing it at an early age and then revisiting it later in life, realizing no matter how many other horror movies you've seen, whether it's like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, things like that, his films still feel so far removed from a lot of films from that era. So uh, I'm curious for you, like, what about his particular style of filmmaking makes it just super memorable for you? I find, like, you look at his body of work and it's so interesting because you have the, the, the Dead series, obviously, that he's kind of remembered for. But then he has all these weird kind of interesting choices like Monkey Shines or um, what's the uh, Night Riders? Yep, Night Riders. Is that the, which yeah, Night Riders. came out before Creepshow, I think. I think it came out the year or two prior. Yeah, yeah. Or um, oh, what's uh, Season of the Witch. Like he just, he had this really eclectic style that I, I don't know, I really liked, uh, I really like revisiting and... Um, I mean, I, I, everyone's talked about the social commentary that's been, you know, kind of pumped into his um, his dead films, which are, you know, he was kind of a master at making these really profound statements, but in a very um, non-heavy-handed sort of way. Yeah. But I also really love how, like, like Creepshow, for instance, is just... I, I sometimes think we take that movie for granted because you've got this movie, you've got it's directed by George A. Romero and it's uh, Stephen King's first um, like original screenplay. And it's got this incredible ensemble cast. And it's just kind of like, I don't, I feel like we don't talk about it enough. Like we're all just kind of like used to it at this point, but it's such an amazing film. It definitely makes me feel kind of silly for not having seen Creepshow before now, just because, yeah, of course he's known for his dead trilogy. And then, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of his sort of, like you said, this eclectic mix of films that he's uh, made outside of that trilogy, which I need to revisit. But Creepshow is one that I know lots of people love the film. But at the same time, yeah, it really is just this remarkable kind of amalgamation of creatives involved. Obviously, you've got two of these like horror dons, essentially, being Romero and Stephen King. But then even just like Tom Savini being involved with being uh, the lead on the practical effects and the makeup and all these things. I mean, it really is like a horror fans dream come true in a sense of all of these creative talents coming together. And then there's so much variety in the film, which is what I was most pleased by, I think, because and I want to get into like anthology horror as a whole. Just I don't know Mm. necessarily that I'm personally a big fan of anthology horror series. And I'm interested to hear kind of if you are a fan in general of that style of uh, filmmaking. Yeah, well, um, 
I definitely am. That's kind of what, that was one of my first kind of gateways, I guess, into the genre. Growing up, I remember watching television shows like Are You Afraid of the Dark and Goosebumps and um, Tales from the Dark Side and obviously Tales from the Crypt, which the comic series um, inspired, you know, Creepshow quite a, quite a bit. And for me, it was always, even if a, even if a segment in, a, in an anthology was kind of weak or an episode, I, I still kind of, I've, I've always been a fan of like the uh, short story format and um, what can be done using that format and and when it's done right it's just it's incredible and even when it's done kind of mediocre it's like oh well it just it didn't take up hours of my time at least you know (laughs) (laughs) but i was like i was always attracted to tales from the crypt because i i there was something about the balance of comedy and horror and it had all these forbidden elements to it as well i mean the the gore effects were obviously pretty top-notch and then it was on hbo so like you had stuff like swearing and nudity and all these things that when you're like a 10 year old kid you're watching and you're just like whoa what is <laughs> there's all these things i've never seen in my life and and it, and it also had this tales from the crypt and vault of horror and all those kind of horror ec comic um horror anthologies had these they're you know people call them morality tales i kind of call them uh come up at capers i don't know but, but you know you've got people like a person does something bad to someone else and the uh, universe makes it right somehow, usually in bloody and spooky ways. <laughs> and as a kid, that really appealed to me because, like, I, I kind of was, uh, I was drawn, I had, a, like, a rough childhood as a kid, and I was drawn to horror because it was, um, it kind of helped make sense of some things, and it was, like, easier to handle than the real world, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, tuning into Tales from the Crypt every week, um, I kind of, in my, like, you know, adolescent mind, I, I, I kind of found some, uh, I could make sense of the world a little bit just from, uh, seeing bad people get their, you know, their comeuppance, I guess. And, um, I think with the, with the exception of the, uh, lonesome death of Jody Vierl, I think is the story, the Stephen King story in, in Creepshow, it's basically the same thing in Creepshow. They really kind of nail that idea that, uh, you know, if you cross this certain line, consequences will be dire (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think that that is the element of the film that really is what allows Creepshow to resonate with me in a way that a lot of anthology horror doesn't and an element of it that i think is so strong that can't be overlooked is the idea that yeah you had both this duo of horror creatives but you had romero in charge solely of directing and you had stephen king solely in charge of writing out the screenplay for it and generally my big issue with anthology horror is that you have all of these different creatives and this melting pot that for me it comes it feels rather disjointed a majority of the time at least for me Mm -hmm. in terms of like i'm thinking of films such as like vhs or um scare package or things like that where it's like i'm approaching it and i'm like yeah this is a bit that i enjoy and i enjoyed this bit but then overall the entire experience it just for me it's a personal thing i just can't get over and this is what I really loved about um, Creepshow in that it feels like it is a cohesive um, narrative, even though each of the tales is not connected, right? It's individual tales of terror, but the same type of style and sensibilities really does kind of permeate throughout each of those. And I think that that is really because it has a sole creative in charge of both aspects of it in a way that, I mean, it helps that the two of them are friends and they both are like these 
uh, horror icons, so they have similar sensibilities, mm -hmm. but each of them really gets to be true to their own style, whether it be writing or filmmaking, in a way that it doesn't feel like they're making a lot of, um, like they're making a lot of kind of exceptions to what they would normally be doing just to appease somebody else. It kind of feels like you're gonna excel in the element of filmmaking that you do, and then I'm going to take my, or in terms of Stephen King, like. I'm just gonna write these wild stories and I'm gonna trust that uh, Romero being this really kind of versatile filmmaker that's used to a variety, like an eclectic variety of storytelling within the medium of horror, mm. it really does make for something that feels special from basically the opening uh, tale or the bait or the uh, prologue of the film as it were. A hundred percent. And it's interesting too, because you can definitely see right from the beginning that, uh, it's it's very much a labor of love the project. Um, you could like I know that uh, both King and Romero kind of grew up on the Tales from the Crypts comics and EC comics, and it really it kind of influenced some of uh, some of the the work that they ended up doing, and kind of was like a gateway into into the horror genre for them. And you could really see them kind of painstakingly trying to match the tone of the comics while also giving it their own voice. But it just seems like I'm trying to think of another horror film that you watch and you just really get the sense that everyone who's working in it had a great time doing it. It's um, it's just it, it really kind of bleeds through the, the scenes that, uh, you know, both King and Romero and and the, ever, everyone else who was working in it um, really enjoyed what they were doing. I remember um, I actually sat in on a panel with uh, uh, John Harrison hmm who uh, did the score for the film and I believe went on to, I think he directed Creepshow 2, but I can't remember. I know he directed uh, the uh, Tales from the Dark Side film, or at least a segment, um, and has directed some of the uh, episodes of Creepshow, the television series that is, that's uh, on Shudder right now. Mm -hmm. But um, he composed the score for the film and he was saying how much, how much fun he had putting that work together because he got to kind of create an individual piece for each of the segments and um, really kind of let his uh, his kind of his mind wander when it comes to uh, you know trying to create pieces for for those for those uh, to like to match the yeah it it just seems like it was a lot of fun to do <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think that it it really avoids one of the pitfalls of horror comedies for me in that it kind sometimes horror comedies will lean too far into one camp to the point where I feel like, oh, well, then you should have just made a horror film or you should have just made a comedy. Whereas with this, I feel that, it, again, this is so much, it's such a fun film to watch. And it really yeah. is a testament to the blending of both of those influences where you have these really kind of fun, morally heavy stories where you see these awful people get their comeuppance by the universe, essentially. But then at the same time, you have these really fantastic practical effects whether it's bringing to life uh, zombie fathers or uh, drowning mm -hmm. victims and all these different things that we'll get into. I mean, there really is a level, a high level of craft in almost every aspect of this film that really makes this work for me again in a way that not a lot of horror anthology films have in the past. But I mean, for people that don't know, like the film is five independent tales of terror and then there's a prologue and an epilogue that kind of bookend everything, right? And it opens with... Um, uh, Tom Atkinson being like worst father of the year in that he's uh, he hits his kid who's named Billy and who's actually Stephen King's son, Joe Hill. 
And Joe then Hill, he yeah. berates him essentially for like reading a creep show comic or a horror comic and he thinks they're filth, which I'm sure in the time period, like parents were probably a lot more, uh, parents probably connected with that and this idea that like, oh, you're reading this junk that's rotting minds and all of this types of things. So, and then the comic itself, the creep show comic that he throws in the garbage essentially becomes our portal into each of the tales of terror. It's an interesting r- wraparound premise. Like I, I find, uh, sometimes I find the wraparounds can be a little like tedious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like how brisk that one is. I also find every time I see that movie, Tom Atkins is, uh, his performance. I always get the, uh, the dad just yelled at me feeling in the pit of my stomach. Like he, he's such a good asshole. Yeah. He's a real piece of shit. Um, and I, and I, I don't know if you've read, uh, Joe Hill's most recent, uh, uh and anthology full throttle i have not no so he has a little story actually about filming um filming creep show of his dad mm. so i guess they had uh they just done like a full day on set and they had filmed that scene where tom Atkins slaps them and everything and then they uh joe gets into the car with his dad and they they drive off to mcdonald's and it's like 10 o'clock at night or something like that and and uh joe is they're, they're waiting at the counter and Joe's taking his time trying to, you know, figure out what he wants because he's, like, super young and, and stuff. And and King, I think, like, was like, come on, hurry up, come on, like, kind of, like, pushing him and stuff. And uh, anyway, the people that served them had, like, these, like, real pale expressions on their faces and looked really, like, like concerned about, like, was something happening here? Mm-hmm. And they both kind of detected this but didn't know what was going on and then they get in the car and they realize the makeup that had the slap mark on uh, on <laughs> oh, Joe's <shit>. face <laughs> was still on his face and it looked like yeah they just walked in and Steven had been like beating his kid oh, or something geez. so yeah <laughs> so that could have gone sideways very quickly yeah absolutely no that's a that's a pretty hilarious uh, or uncomfortable anecdote from, uh, from their yeah. perspective something they could laugh at later in life but um, I think for me what was most apparent early on is just how this feels so much like a comic book. And I think that considering that this movie is essentially a love letter to the EC comics, like you were saying, things like Tales from the Crypt and whatnot, I mean, they really do capture that feeling of it being a 50s horror comic. And that is a a big, like we'll get into each of the individual tales, but I mean, I just love the, a lot of the animation fading in and out from comic panels Mm. to uh, live action and then vice versa. But then also kind of, they use like the turning of a page or a panel to tra- for transitions or even the way that they use um, like neon lighting that you would see probably in like 50s or 60s comics, right? I mean, so many times with throughout the course of the entire film, they utilize like red neon lights when somebody's getting killed or when violence is happening. Oh, the lighting is beautiful. It almost reminded me a bit of uh, a little bit of like Argento or Bava. Absolutely. Like, like yeah, it's, uh, it's gorgeous. And, and I love how I feel like the color... The colors that are used for each tale kind of differ a little bit, mm-hmm. which is a nice touch. Or maybe that's just in my head. You know when you see colors, or not see colors, uh, what is that uh, that condition sometimes people have where they uh, they associate a color with a word? I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sidetracking us here. No, but, no, yeah. no, no, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I think, so even if they're using like slightly different color hues and whatnot throughout, it still all feels like one coherent tone and one coherent kind of aesthetic Mm. throughout all of them. And again, I think that comes back to the idea that 
one creative is in charge of one major element of it. And that is what allows the film to feel so co so cohesive in a way that I don't necessarily attribute those elements with most anthology horror that I've seen at least. And so that is what makes Creepshow as a whole this really complete package in a way that is not only funny and scary, but it really is this its own kind of style and aesthetic that I can't attribute to uh, to many others that I've seen at least. Yeah, it definitely stands on its own. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, in getting into kind of the first Tale of Terror, Happy Father's Day, which was an original <laughs> segment that King wrote for the film, I mean, he adapted two of the segments, I believe, from short stories, which was um, Weeds and uh, The Crate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that sounds about right. I mean, the, I know the, the second one definitely feels very Lovecraftian, like mm -hmm. Color Out of Space, but yeah, but yeah I'm actually wearing my uh, Father's Day shirt right now. Oh, there the, you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that that was a very fitting uh, opening because, again, it kind of captures one of the kind of ethoses of the entire film where it's this idea that horrible people are going to get their comeuppance, right? You kind of have this very snooty kind of wealthy family that are very gossipy and they're talking about how one of their family members killed their father who is, again, coming back to like abusive fathers which is in the beginning of the prologue like you see this mm. guy that's like very abusive and a piece of shit to his kids he finally gets a little his foreshadowing up. about what will happen to tom atkins later yeah, Sorry. <laughs> yeah exactly that's a great point um but overall like i love that because it focuses on family which a lot of those types of like king stories do but then also mm -hmm. right immediately it kind of blends humor and morality with fantastic practical effects from Tom Savini, who, of course, did the uh, makeup and practical effects. But uh, what do you think kind of of uh, Happy Father's Day? I mean, you must like it because you have the shirt, right? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, my, my favorite segment probably changes every year. But um, I know that um, with with that with that one, it's, it's I can't remember the name of the actress who plays Bedelia, but her it is like, uh, monologue. Vivica Linford. Linford? She's great. She's so wonderful. She manages to be like sort of kind of comic, a little like a little scary because she's clearly a bit like unhinged. But there's like this tragic element too, like as she's as she's like kind of um like talking to her father at his at his grave. You can see there's um she still holds that anger towards him, and she but she also has maybe a little bit of regret like about about killing him. But then also that rage about like, you know, she, he took that like the one person that she loved away from her. And it's it's just I, I don't know. It's only like, I don't know, maybe a two minute long scene that that monologue that she has. But it's so perfect. And uh, Savini's special effects are incredible. Like, I really love the little details that I I really hadn't noticed until this um, this most recent viewing. Um possibly because I wasn't watching my, my DVD. I was actually watching the Blu-ray of it for the first time. But uh, there's like worms inside the uh, the eye socket of yeah of the father that uh, are kind of wiggling around there. You can see like muscle tone and and uh, and like tendons and stuff still hanging off of like exposed bone. And there's just a lot of detail put into that uh, into that suit, which is great. Um, what else? There's just there's so many 
Oh, I was just going to say Ed Harris of hair and disco dancing yep. was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say also like with the father zombie, the manipulation of the voice, it reminded me a lot yeah. of um, like, in, if, I don't know if you I assume you've seen Prince of Darkness, the John Carpenter movie where there's the guy, just watch it the, other there's day. the guy that is uh, consumed by bugs, essentially. And he's got that kind of like throaty, uh, otherworldly voice that kind of just echoes. And that sound is very similar to like the zombie father. But I feel like just the way that you're able to introduce something that looks the part and then have this incredibly creepy voice to back it up is just, it's the best of both worlds in the portrayal of a very, I mean, it's a zombie and it's Romero directing. So it's kind of like very Romero, but it's presented in a way Mm. that doesn't feel derivative of something that he had done before. And I think that, again, that yeah. comes back to the talent of having King, having Romero, and then having Savini again um, in charge of that. But uh, even also like with that, it you're right in that Bedelia's monologue to her father's gravestone, it gets pretty heavy at a certain point. But then we have that moment of levity. I mean, you have her father in a flashback who not only had Bedelia's lover get killed, but then he's berating her and he's you get the sense that he has been a piece of shit for a long time. But then you also wonder, I sometimes wonder, not to justify the him being a piece of shit, but like you look at the rest of that family and because he's complaining specifically about you all just want my money and that's the only reason why you're here. And you know what? He's probably kind of right. I'm, pro- I'm sure true. he's probably right about that. They're sitting there and they're they're talking about how he or how uh, Bedelia had, had killed him. Mm-hmm. And they're also they, they don't seem to really give a shit. They're just kind of like <laughs> that's true. They don't. I I think it's interesting. Like, I refer to him as a piece of shit, but in a sense, they're all pieces of shit. So it's kind of like figuring out who is the worst person out of this group, kind of. Um, <laughs> but what I, the where I was going with that is this idea that, like, it's it gets very heavy at a certain point because you can see that Bedelia is so beaten down by his behavior and abuse towards her that it's not like this just started. This has clearly been going on for years. And yet King is able to insert a certain amount of humor it's dark humor at this point, but you have him, the father with the cane banging, I want my cake over and over and over. Like mm. you can't not laugh at that, even though the context is pretty dour. And especially when he's moments from getting his head bashed in with a, uh, an ashtray. So that kind mm-hmm. of is the humor in the film, I think is really smartly used in a majority of the film in that it never kind of veers too much into horror or comedy, right? It kind of is this perfect mediation of the two. And again, that's one mm. of the elements for me that makes this overall film just so enjoyable because it's a difficult balance to, to have. And I don't find personally that like a lot of horror comedies necessarily nail that. And this film definitely yeah. serves as a pretty strong example of that. Yeah, for sure. It's a, And that's also a really interesting point you brought up about I've never in as many times as, as I've seen this film, I, I had never drawn that connection between Romero essentially creating the modern zombie and then him, he's directing this different kind of zombie in, the, in this segment and somehow manages to not copy himself. That's a, that's a good point. I also was wondering that scene where, or part, the part where he, uh, he's reaching out towards Ed Harris and Ed Harris is in the, in the grave and the tombstone is falling over. It, does he have like telepathy or anything? Is he like pulling the the tombstone onto him, or it's a good? I was just I was just wondering. No, yeah, um, I had two th- two thoughts to that. I was thinking, huh, does this zombie have telekinesis, and yet he's very like he uses it very sp- uh, sparingly, or is it another family member 
that's like again fed up with one another and this, they kind oh. of have this infighting and it's like you only see ed harris in the grave we don't see the other family members um or the maid yeah. for that matter and i mean you know that they all have this very contentious relationship so maybe that's an avenue but um i would definitely th- i would lead with i would assume that the uh the father zombie has some type of power sick yeah. <laughs> i'm all for uh even more like supernatural zombies which is awesome but again that's romero expanding on he's not he's not kind of obviously he's drawing influence from other zombie things that he's done but at the same time mm. that's completely removed from anything up until that point that he had been involved with the zombies um so it just shows that again this movie is wildly creative in every single tale that it draws from a lot of different places, but at the same time, the final product is really something that, I mean, for the context of those stories, it's not something that you've seen before that you could say is definitively like, oh, that's like this film or this other short story or segment. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I love the blending of horror and humor and that the film, the not the film, the segment ends with the father being like, I got my cake. And then it's his wife. I, was it his wife or his daughter? I forget. Um, I think it was his wife. I wasn't sure about that yeah. either. I think so. I think yeah. it was his wife, but then he's made a cake out of his wife's head and it's, she's got candles in it. It's, it's like horrifying, but then at the same time, it's hilarious because it's tying back to this idea that it's just a zombie that wants a cake, but if you're not going to make it, <laughs> he's going to make it himself out of whatever is available. I often wonder what happens at, right after that moment. Is he content now that he has his cake? And I, I also love the, uh, I love the reaction shots of the, uh, of the son and daughter and i love when it when it uh turns back into the comic book um one of them has uh there's like gasp and then another person has gag as their uh, their sound effect which is is so perfect like it's totally 50s it's yeah it's, it's such a great strong opener yeah absolutely and it gives you a perfect picture of what the rest of the film is going to be and in terms yeah. of like the style and tone and again that blending of horror and comedy and yeah, that 50s, I love the comic book aesthetic, again, of the whole film. And that moment is really indicative of that because it's one that they return to. And yet, especially when they blend from live action to comic book, the panels are, it could have been so easy for them to be like, well, we'll just make a panel up that kind of like has a picture of what was happening. And then we'll just move mm-hmm. on to the next thing. But it has bits of dialogue. It has descriptors of what was happening in the scene previously. Like there's just so much fine detail in that that it really does become immersive in a way that it could have just been a cheap effect you know what i mean they use the panels turning or i believe it was in the crate um when they're having a phone call like it breaks up into two individual panels and yeah i I mean i love that effect but it goes further than that just because of how detailed it is yeah i love that there's moments where you almost you want to pause and read what's like i know at one point there's a transition and you see it's uh, letters to the to the creep Mm -hmm. and you want to read what the letters are it's it's a it's a nice touch or the advertisements when the uh, garbage men find at the end like there's full advertisements there and that could have just been pictures with scribbles for text but as you if you pause it which i actually did for a lot of them i paused it just because i love the artwork but also like getting to read the small details and stuff like it is so immersive in a way that again it could have just been this cheap kind of throwaway oh you're in a comic book but it really feels like oh you're reading through this portal to other stories in the horror world yeah for sure and uh i really like to that uh you can really see a difference between like i'm not i'm not trying to knock the, the creep show television show 
but um, I f- I'm pretty sure that the because they also have some transitions and kind of mimic that. But I'm pretty sure it's done all digitally. And that sounds right. seeing the hand, yeah, and seeing all the hand animated uh, pages, it really like adds this level of charm and authenticity that I think the the digitally created pages just don't necessarily have. Yeah. I think, yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. Um, yeah, not to knock this series, which I think succeeds occasionally, and it does capitalize on some elements of what it's uh, being adapted from yeah. well, but at the same time, I would say that it definitely does not nail the immersion factor. And I don't know if that has to do with the fact that it is a series instead of a two-hour film with, like, the the best of the best, of, as if you would, uh, if you mm. were. But... Um, yeah, I don't think that that works nearly as well as um, as the film does. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's hit or miss. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you think about the next tale of terror, though, the lonesome death of uh, Jordy Verrill, which is Stephen King. I believe it's his first uh, acting role. Um, oh, I'm pretty sure that's. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's. I'm the pretty case. sure. <laughs> I mean, that would be my assumption, but. Um, yeah, this one was based off of one of his previously released short stories, uh, which is called Weeds, which is essentially about this farmer who discovers a meteorite that crashes in his yard. He touches it, and then he's got this thing where he keeps putting his fingers in his mouth, and then, of course, he touches the meteorite, and there's this, like, alien um, fungus, basically, that grows on anything that it touches, and then he becomes enthralled yeah. by the, and then, of course, the uh, farm itself does, and this uh, parasite basically kind of just grows rampantly throughout the place. But uh, I'm interested to hear what you think about this one. So, um, yeah, I'm a big defender of this, of this segment. Um, I really think the comedy of it works and I, I think King's performance is, it's huge. And apparently that's what, uh, George Romero wanted out of that. He kept saying to get bigger and bigger and bigger with it. And, and I think it's appropriate for the, the general tone of it. Like he's, there's, there's so many moments that are just, like uh, the comedy is almost like layered mm-hmm. and smart in a way that like there's moments that I, 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 on my, on my last viewing that I, I, I didn't realize I hadn't noticed, um, you know, the first 15 or 20 times I'd seen the film, like just the idea that in his fantasy, he can bring this meteorite to, I, I can't even remember. Was it a university professor? Yeah, it was a university yeah, and then he thinks the guy's going to give him $50. <laughs> but he's like, no, I'm going to hold out for $200 for this meteor from space, which is all hilarious. But I never noticed the detail that the guy, after he pulls the cash box, the university professor having a cash box in his desk, <laughs> pulls it out. He starts peeling off $5 bills and counting those off to him, which I just think is like, it's just such a great <laughs> idea. Like, I love the way Jody's mind works. Mm-hmm. And I also think you were talking earlier about the the balance between kind of uh, humor and and kind of like the the darker parts of the material, and it's such an absurd segment. And then at the very end, Jody kind of like wakes up and he's essentially Swamp Thing <laughs> or a, like a living you know moss mm-hmm. person, and he grabs his shotgun and he says out loud like you know, please God, just let my luck work out for me this time Mm -hmm. before he, like, shoots himself in the head. And that's a really heavy moment, and it's really sad, and I I feel like 
you've you've got this this guy who's like not the you know the sharpest knife in the drawer but seems like a decent enough person and it seems like every single you know thing in his life has kind of like he's either messed up or I don't know, and and then and then he's got this opportunity that literally comes from space that he thinks is going to change his life, and it completely turns him into a monster. And he just, you feel bad for him. Like the one thing he has left, or the one thing that he wants out of life, is to just be able to like kill himself at the end. And I don't know, it's just really heavy and tragic. Yeah, it's. I mean, it should be called the tragic death of uh, of Jordy. I mean, yeah, that's what I think that that ending doesn't get sold as well as it does because I agree 100 percent with you in that. Like, yeah, the three fourths of it are bigger than life itself, right? Jordy is this guy that can't get out of his own way. Every single thing he does worsens his situation, and he has these yeah. kind of uh, these fantasies of fortune and fame and all of these things based on this discovery that he thinks is going to change his life and i mean at least the portrayal that it is in this it's like yeah okay he's a farmer that clearly doesn't have a lot of money he doesn't he lives by himself he's lonesome he's living there by himself and i mean clearly he's portrayed as being an alcoholic too on top of that right he's like drinking straight from a bottle of some type of liquor and then he makes himself a a screwdriver out of like a, a pitcher that you use for iced tea, <laughs> something that's so aggressive that it speaks yeah. volumes of his situation. But then also you just see it getting worse and worse. And then of course he has this, um, he starts hallucinating. He sees his father in the mirror and his father essentially is telling him like, you're no good and all of these things, which I'm sure is his mental state. And then you're still laughing though at all of the moss that's growing everywhere, right? The idea that he touched it, it's on his fingers. He t- put his fingers in his mouth and it's spreading and it's like, at the end of the day, he has no one to blame but himself. But yep. you don't get an indication that he's a bad person just because he might be, like you said, not the he's not the brightest uh, bulb. At the same time, like there's no indication that he's not at least a decent person. And so seems pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, he seems perfectly normal. He just he's alone and whatnot. But there's no indication he's a bad person. And so to have mm. it end on such a dour note when. A majority of the of the uh, segment were probably laughing just because of the ridiculousness of a spreading fungus and he is the doer of his own demise and everything. It really does make it tragic. And then as soon as he kills himself, you hear the news bulletin that says, oh, there's going to be rain for a couple of days, which is great for crops. This idea that he yeah. has potentially unleashed this new hell on Maine where he's based. I think he lives in Castle Rock. If I'm not mistaken. He's like, yeah, five five miles away, I think, is the, what the sign yeah, says. Yeah, and it kind of just shows, like, his last effort to escape. At the end of the day, he's basically, like, unleashed hell on Earth before he kills himself. Yeah. Which kind of doubles down on just how tragic his death is. That's, that's yeah, that's so true. And it's an interesting... I wonder if George's direction to for, for Steve to, to go big... I'm sure part of that was to basically try to cover up the fact that you know we were, it wasn't dealing with a professional actor but i also wonder if part of it too was just understanding how how kind of dark that ending was and just the fact that like you said like this is this isn't like the other stories where it's you know justice being dealt out mm. it's just kind of an innocent person you know chosen by space <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> have this horrible thing happen to him so you kind of just like if you just played it straight it would be a real bummer after that that opening segment. I think it would be a bummer and it would it also would not be funny at all almost in that sense like it would just be it wouldn't be yeah. 
so bad it's good. It would just be bad, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think that the way that they're really able, apart from King's performance, which again, I think you're right in that they have to cover up the fact he's not an actor. Professional or otherwise, mm. he's just not an actor. And so having him periodically say these crazy lines like, I'll be dipped in shit if it ain't a meteor or meteor shit, which I think he says three or meteor four shit. times. I mean, you have to have those big those big moments because it, I mean, I would, I would hope that it sends the message home to everyone that, hey, this is so over the top that there's no way that it's not intentional. And the humor in this segment is, it's much more humor focused, but also it's more overtly written almost like a comedy. Whereas all the other skits, it, yeah. it phases in and out. Whereas this, it's a comedy from the moment it begins up until the moment where you see him in the corner as a moss man and you're like, oh, that got as bad as you could get. And then he reaches for the shotgun, which legitimately caught me off guard because it's so humor focused that when he reaches for the shotgun, I'm like, oh shit, King, I leave yeah. it to King to like end this hilarious bit on the most dour of notes. Yeah, yeah. Until he find, until he pulls back that curtain to show the shotgun, you think he's just going to be like, "Oh, Jody, yeah. you done it again, <laughs> like Willikers," which is great because, in at the end of the day, like I would expect that from King, and if I didn't get that ending, I would be like, "Okay, that was the one big comedy segment of the film." But then I think if it doesn't end on that kind of bummer note, it almost feels too far removed from all the other uh, all the other segments. Yeah. In a way that you'd be like, looking back on it, you would almost be like, that was really strange that they decided to go with that. Um, so for those reasons, I think, again, it just shows like, had there been multiple writers and not just King at the helm of all of the segments that were being written, of course, it helps that he had, was uh, adapting something he'd already written. I mean, it does allow the tone of the entire film of Creepshow to really, from point A to B, really stick uh, the overall tone, which blends into the aesthetic and everything else that uh, the film accomplishes. And I think in mm. getting into like our next tale, something to tide you over, it kind of goes back to another element of King where his ability to kind of blend, I almost feel like this one begins as Richard, a Richard Bachman short story and then bleeds into oh, classic yeah. King. This idea where the first half of something that tied you over has nothing supernatural about it, right? It's about... It's a crime story. Yeah, it's a crime story. And then it bleeds into something that would feel more like classic King. And it capitalizes on yeah. uh, Savini's practical work, of course. And then also two top tier performances from Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. Um, which make this one just a ton of fun. But what do you think of uh, something that tied you over? Well, that currently is actually my favorite segment. Um, I There's so much tension in that, like right from the get-go. And I love how quickly, or not quickly, rather, uh, slowly, um, King kind of ratchets that up. I love, like when I was a kid, I remember watching, you know, Cheers, and I grew up on like the Naked Gun series and Airplane and all those all those movies with um, Leslie Nielsen playing comedic roles and Ted Danson playing just kind of the smooth-talking guy. And, and it was interesting watching them in that segment for the first time as a kid because they, they feel really against character. I mean, I guess Ted Danson is still kind of smooth-talker, but it's, it's, uh, it's weird seeing him in this dramatic role staring death kind of down the barrel. I've never seen him with the stakes so high before, I feel like. Exactly. 
Yeah, and then Leslie Nielsen, I mean, I didn't know... That was the thing that made me so uncomfortable as a kid and still kind of makes me uncomfortable because he plays a villain extremely well. Absolutely. He's really chilling. Yeah. I love how um, he's just calm throughout the whole thing until the end when his, his mind finally cracks when he sees the, uh, you know, the bloated corpses of the two people he killed. But um, he's so calm and calculating and has, like, this kind of mean dry wit about him as well as he's doing these horrible things to these people i just love it and i love that that's a great point you made about the kind of bachman king split there i love i love that uh i love how it starts off as almost like a crime story and then very quickly turns into something much darker <laughs> it's the perfect third act of a five act film i feel like because it's so I found it to be, because this is my first watch of Creepshow, I found this to be so incredibly jarring right after that Geordie skit, which at least in that one, it was more comedic, but it felt like King. And I mean, I'm not super familiar with a lot of the Bachman uh, texts other than kind of like what he was setting out to do with those texts, right? So it's kind of like more crime focused. It's not really the Stephen King, classic Stephen King experience, uh, as it were. So to begin it, with something that's very crime-driven and very grounded, I found to be jarring, but in the best way possible, in that it felt like, it felt refreshing at this point. Because if we had just gotten yeah. another skit that was immediately like Happy Father's Day or another Geordie-type skit uh, segment, yeah. it would have been like, okay, we're, start, we're at the third, we're almost halfway through, we're starting to like return to the well a little bit here. And so to be thrown such a curveball out the gate, and you're right in that, I mean, my background with Leslie Nielsen was airplane. It was Naked Gun. So to see him play yeah. such a chilling vi uh, villain and play it so well is super uncomfortable. Like when he uh, is approaching Ted Danson's character, Harry, in his apartment because he finds out that, hey, Harry's sleeping with his wife and then he pulls out a gun. I'm like, okay, this is completely outside the realm of what I would expect from either of these actors because like you said Ted Danson and Cheers and whatnot like plays a smooth talking pretty normal guy that hangs out with has the popular and women and everything but to see him play kind of like a somewhat scandalous character against type a little bit and then to see Leslie Nielsen Man. be a hundred percent against uh, type I mean it makes for a really engaging and intriguing kind of combination before we even get into the fact that Hey, Leslie Nielsen's going to bury you up to your neck at the beach and watch as the tide comes in and <laughs> drown. I mean, it's an incredible start to uh, the segment. And he's such a creep, too. Like, the way he talks about... I, I love the idea that it's not even... He doesn't really care that much that his wife has cheated on him because it's clear that he's not even in love with her or never has been in love with her. I think that's even a line in 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 the segment at one point. It, but it's more the fact that like this person that he feels that he owns as piece of property, he might end up losing it, is the thing that drives him into a rage. Well, he says, "I keep what is mine." That's what he says, right? Yeah. Which is a, yeah. It's that's a that's all you need to know about his character. There. Yeah. Yeah. Just terrifying stuff. But I love too how he how King expands on uh, them being buried up to their necks, right? Because he gets. Um, Ted Danson's character buried up to his neck and then the tide is going to come in and essentially drown him. But he doesn't stop mm. there. He takes it one step further where he puts a TV in front of him and he makes him watch as the woman that he was having an affair with who he ostensibly loves 
is drowning in this and succumbing to the same fate that he's about to. So not only is like he being tortured with that, but he's given a preview of what is in store for him. I mean, it's so sinister in the best way possible. Yeah, it's like these his his heart dies and his body dies. You know, like he has to watch this person that he loves die a terrible death while knowing that same thing's about to happen to him. And then you see Nielsen just go inside and watch on a TV while he pours himself a drink and he's so nonchalant about it that yeah. it it's great because it avoids making anybody feel like a caricature of a specific kind of like crime trope. You know what I mean? You, Of course, in all crime novels at some point, you have the guy who finds out, oh, somebody stepped out with my girl, so now I have to kill them. But he never becomes like this larger than life villain. He is just very matter of fact about everything, which yeah. is more unsettling. I mean, I don't think there's much, there isn't anything unsettling when the person stands over and gives this crazy monologue and all of these things. But if the guy just tells you what's about to happen to you and then leaves, to go watch it and from the comfort of his home. I mean, that is haunting in a way that I think King, you would have to have a horror sensibility like King does to really kind of avoid the easy approach to that kind of villain. I think having it and kind mm. of, you reveal more almost about that person by not having them kind of have these massive emotions, whereas it's kind of everything is very subtle. And yet in that subtlety comes this very like sinister nature. Yeah. That's a great point. And then, of course, this one, this uh, segment kind of explodes into a creature feature, which is fantastic because then we get back to Classic King, which, again, highlights Savini's fantastic work on this film. And yeah, and, and as a, I'm from Atlantic Canada, so the sea is very much in my blood and uh, <laughs> I love anything that's aquatic horror, like the the fog, you know, any, any of those films are, are really in my wheelhouse. So I just love the like seeing these um kind of slime covered seaweed draped um sea changed uh bloated bodies with the uh, I I love the idea that like he shoots one of them in the head and it's like seawater mm -hmm. comes out instead of blood it's it's perfect there's also a little uh, bit of trivia apparently um uh Danson brought his daughter on set and uh yeah um uh, I think he tried to scare her with his makeup on and she just totally wasn't phased, if I remember correctly. <laughs> That's a great one. But I think that, um, yeah, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a New Englander, uh, so I love aquatic horror as well. Like that connection, of course, yeah. King being from Maine, like that's very much in his blood and a lot of like his sensibilities about um, his approach to horror. But I love how, again, it's very subtle, the approach to it, right? You see the fog rolling in, which of course is reminiscent of like John Carpenter's The Fog. And I love that effect. Yeah. And I love how you hear and you see shadows before you actually see the creature itself. I love this segment because it is paced like it was a full feature film. Nothing is shown too mm. early on. And it's only up until the last maybe five minutes of the segment, even, I don't even know if it's for that long, but it leads up to it in a way that's very tense filled. And it doesn't feel like they're trying to rush to the ending and show off the big monster. And so they do it through, like I said, they do it through the atmosphere, but then also you hear them before you see them. And I love the kind mm. of, again, coming back to manipulation of voice. And that's kind of like the zombie father in uh, happy father's day where they have this voice that sounds like 
their lungs are filled with water, obviously because they've been drowned. Oh, but, God, I yeah. mean, the way that it kind of reverberates throughout the scene and how it sounds so distorted or like they're trying to catch their breath while they're talking is so chilling that by the time you see them, it just makes them that much scarier. And it kind of it allows Savini's work to really shine in a way that I'm sure it would be fantastic whether or not it had King's atmosphere and King's or Romero's atmosphere and King's ability to kind of like pace this as it needed to be. But I mean, again, mm. it shows the strength of having those three creatives working in tandem with one another. Definitely. And that I think um, the pacing is a, it's a great point. And it's something that's seen in, in all the segments. I, I feel like that's a, an issue that can then happen in anthology horror where sometimes, uh, you know, the, if, if one of the segments, the pacing is too quick or it lags, it just throws off the uh, the r- general rhythm of of the whole the whole picture but i think romero and king really nail it in this and it's interesting because i kn- i know that the crate the next segment is is i think it's definitely the longest segment i i can't remember the runtime though it it definitely um, is yeah but it it doesn't feel like it's dragging at all i think that that is the pacing is the biggest tell of again you having a sole creative in charge of both departments of this and that I agree that like a lot of antho- anthology horror by the time you get to the end of it it's very apparent that certain segments obviously did not live up or match with anything else and that is indicative of like yeah you have all these creatives so the idea that you would be able to make all of these segments mesh together is not realistic and so even mm. in creep show where you go from something that is kind of the uh, you have Happy Father's Day, and then you go into the most comedic, heavy segment of it, at least when it ends on a dour note, you see where it's building to. So that way, like, as soon as I finished the film, I looked back and I was thinking about, well, did that really fit? Did this fit? Did that really meld together as well as it could? And then you see it almost like a puzzle piece in terms of, again, had uh, something to tide you over, not kind of capitalized on an ending that is very similar to uh, certain King sensibilities, you might be like, why is this crime story in the middle of this horror comedy? But again, it's mm. his kind of blending of both worlds of his um, his experience in writing that really makes it all come together in a way that initially you might be like, that's kind of an interesting choice. When you look back on it, it all kind of just blends together um, in a really satisfying way that, I mean, it makes me just look forward to revisiting the film, but the crate, I think, what is so great about that is that it is the longest segment. At the same time, though, the characters are all so great. The extended amount of time, it's not wasted. It's spent developing the characters yeah. and the relationship. So that way, when you get into the more kind of King sensibilities with the monsters and Savini practical effects, you actually care about what's happening and you're invested in these characters, which, again, it's a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things, which it's a difficult thing to make somebody care about a character in anthology horror. Yeah, yeah, I find they, um, especially the relationship between I can't remember the the husband's name, but uh, the uh, the main character and Henry and in uh, Adrian Barbeau's character. Um, yeah, you really. God bless Billy. I love <laughs> Billy. <laughs> I kind of felt bad. Because I, I, I felt bad for him. Um, I, I felt bad for him too, but then I'm also like, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like in the first segment where, uh, um, the, uh, grandfather or whatever, you, you kind of wonder, well, you know, he's probably right. They are all leeches. And, uh, with, with Billy, it's like, 
I mean, he might be kind of... I guess he could be kind of lame. I mean, maybe, like, maybe... I think it's interesting because on the outside, like, his demeanor is so beaten down and obviously he, and he's basically portrayed as a pushover but then you see throughout the, mm-hmm. s- the segment he has these various moments where he just fantasizes about killing her and while Billy might be uh, verbally abusive and things like that and belittling him at the end of the day which is worse a fantasy about murdering your spouse or being verbally abusive in a way you know what I mean like it, that's true I, yeah it kind of again to your point it comes back to uh, Happy Father's Day this idea that you're juggling potentially like two people that are not the best, and it's kind of like weighing which is which of the two is worse. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 also kind of this terrifying prospect of like you never know what's going on behind someone else's eyes. You know what I mean? Like they could seem like a pushover or super bland, or like it's always the it's always the person you least expect to has like you know a bunch of like fucking heads in their basement you know it's (laughs) you just never know (laughs) and i think that again like the two moments where um henry has those fantasies about killing billy are like super morbid but then the last minute especially uh the first one where he they're at this garden party at the university that they teach at and he has this fantasy where he just takes out a gun and kills her in the middle of the party and like that's a super dark moment but then of course King balances it out with humor and that everybody at the party, who, like some of them are covered in blood and brain matter. They kind of look over at him and they all start clapping, like applauding his, <laughs> his deed. And so I thought that that was a really fantastic example of just like balancing out this super fucked up moment with something that is super fun. It's a hilarious moment because at first I'm just like, because I'd never seen it. So I was like, holy shit, is this the angle that this mm-hmm. segment takes? And then you're just like, <laughs> no, he's just like having these really messed up fantasies. I think that you get the ending in that segment that you do and it's so satisfying because of all the time that's spent developing these characters again. I mean, you have his friend Dexter who is a professor at the university who basically gets a call from a janitor there. Hey, I found this crate. It's really old. You should come check this out. And then of course there's a monster inside the crate and it eats the janitor. And then Dexter has to elicit the help of uh, Henry and Henry, what is his goal in life? I got to get rid of my wife. Who's, being a pain to me and so he start you start to see the gears turning in his head before he even says it like okay he's definitely going to feed his wife to this monster in a crate <laughs> <laughs> and i love too how uh i'm sure when dexter thought you know who who can i call about this and then he, he calls henry i'm sure there's some part of him that's thinking like what am i doing this guy's not gonna know mm-hmm. like this is probably the worst person to call and yet he's that that guy who just immediately it's like a he's like a fixer yeah like he he already he automatically knows everything that he should do to like because the the janitor who gets killed doesn't he um i'm trying to remember now he uh he knows to like mop up the blood yep. and like it's just he's just very efficient mm-hmm. and completely unexpected of the, the type of person that he is well it's like you said he's very unassuming early on but yeah Sometimes those people that are purposefully unassuming are the ones that have a head full, uh, refrigerator full of heads or whatnot. But I think it is, <laughs> it is funny though how his wife spends the entire film talking about how he or uh, belittling him, being like, You're an idiot. What would you do without me? And then you realize he doesn't need anybody. He's 100% capable of cleaning up the scene of a crime and all of these things. And I think that that lends some mystery to his character. And you're almost like, Okay, I don't know if I want to be left alone in a room or piss this guy off because we don't know how that'll play out. Um, 
Mm. But I think overall, that segment, what really does it for me is, again, Savini's fantastic practical work because the creature in it that comes out of the crate, and I think Savini himself uh, nicknamed it Fluffy or something like that. I think I yeah. read that, but um, yeah. the it's based, it's essentially like a werewolf in a crate, right? And when that college student comes to Dexter's rescue and then, of course, gets mauled, like you get that fantastic, gory practical work where he's like getting his face slashed he's getting chunks eaten out of him oh, and i man. mean it's it's brutal and it was so brutal to a degree that i wasn't expecting it because again it's a horror comedy and yet this is probably the most horror centric uh yeah i'll say i would say that it's probably the most horror centric of the segments just because there's one or two brief moments of comedy or humor but it's not mm-hmm. throughout the entire thing Maybe tied you over is more horror centric, but anyways, I think that it, the practical effects really lean into the camp of horror more so than maybe in the other uh, segments. No, definitely. And uh, I also think that because like sometimes I, I sympathize a little bit with Henry, but then I feel like uncomfortable about that. And I feel like they, uh, the fact that at the very end, it ends on that note of the uh, the crate opening up underwater mm-hmm. and the beast getting out. That leaves you with a, a note of okay, it's a, it's all right. He's gonna get his. Right. I'm, I'm assuming. I'm assuming the beast is gonna track him down. Well, that's a great yeah. That's a great point in that it does end ambiguously, and it's because the way that that final shot before you see the crate, it's framed. It's um, it's Henry and Dexter playing chess by that massive window, and the camera's just lingering yeah. there. I assumed that Fluffy was gonna crash through the window. And come back but um yeah i think that it's cool that that one ends ambiguously because you really don't know what henry's capable of so there's uncertainty there and then you know that this creature has escaped again and there's uncertainty there so it's the one story that is not really uh it doesn't end on like a, it doesn't up. end cleanly it's open for interpretation i think that that is the most fitting ending for the type of uh segment that uh the crate is I just love the role reversal in the in the, the chess playing scene how they um by the end it's it's been clear that henry really has been you know three or four steps ahead of of everybody this whole time and uh and dexter's actually been played and it's uh i love that there's there's kind of a dawning on his face that that's the case and it's it's genuinely chilling and it makes you wonder with the the beast erupting out of its crate and and escaping you almost wonder, well, will it will it um, come and devour Henry, or will Henry figure out a way to kind of, you know, this is my new, uh, you know, ace and ace in the hole or whatever. Like, right. will it be able to figure out a way for it to do his bidding? Like, who knows? But he might come up with a way. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that out of all the characters, he would be the one to figure out a way. But also, I mean, it kind of represents essentially this metaphor of like Henry's awakening, right? He's essentially coming Mm. out of his shell, much like the beast comes out of the crate in that when he comes out, somebody is going to die and they both have that effect on uh, the others around them. But yeah, that one is definitely one of my, uh, one of my favorite segments, I think out of the entirety of uh, Creepshow. But um, in going from this kind of like creature feature segment into the final segment, which is they're creeping up on you, which is another original, um, another original segment for the film that King wrote. Um, this one is much more psychological, I think. I would say, yeah. I think that's safe to say in terms of like all the other segments. This is definitely the most psychological one. And again, it has a fantastic kind of just sinister 
mean as hell performance from a uh, E.G. Marshall who plays Upson Pratt, who is he this ruthless business tycoon who uh, suffers this fear of germs and bugs essentially. And so he kind of lives in this hermetically sealed, sterile white apartment and he rarely leaves. And basically he just abuses everybody in his life via the telephone or intercom. Um, but what do you think of this segment? Cause this is a, this is a hell of a way to uh, close out the film. Oh my God, you're telling me. And, and honestly, this is the first time I've seen the film since, since COVID mm. and it's played, it played, this segment played a lot, uh, a lot differently than Absolutely. Yeah, years previous. Cause I, I watched it, but I was like, yeah, hey, it's a pretty good setup. <laughs> I, I, I'd like a setup like that right now. Right. I would probably be throwing, like every time I use a wet wipe, having to throw those away every time I clean my phone coming home from work or going to work or whatever. But yeah, it definitely <laughs> resonates in a, in a much more, uh, a much more disturbing way than it does. Uh, if I had seen it pre, uh, pre COVID. Yeah. I, it's one of those segments that just, it's very simple. It could easily be, because it's just essentially like a, a guy in a room, it could kind of be boring or or um, kind of, I don't know, like tedious, but it, I feel like it plays really well. Um, especially if anyone anyone who has a, any sort of fear of, of bugs or roaches or anything, it, um, it really does get under your skin. Uh, I love anything that it kind of real in a weird way. It, it reminds me a bit of uh, the Raven, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Not so much in the sense that he's mourning anybody, but um, I love this kind of this element from, I guess not the animal kingdom. In this case, it's the, you know, insect kingdom, mm -hmm. but this element from the inside um, making it in, into his kind of airtight sanctuary and just refusing, refusing to leave, I guess. Yeah, I really love how, again, like you had kind of said, it was, it's a very simplistic premise and it's just a guy in a room if you want to kind of be reductive about it. And yet we're able to make this environment very interesting because based on the character himself, right? It's kind of like, it's it's sterile white and everything, but you learn so much from the environment, how particular everything is, how he's so cut off from the world. And yet he almost, his only pleasure could really be derived from his jukebox and using the intercom and his phone, which is basically just to torment people, right? I mean, he's so gleefully mm -hmm. torments people, but at the same time, it's interesting. You and I have been talking about characters that are getting their comeuppance, and at the same time, while it's in, it's inarguable that this guy is a scumbag because he's like laughing about a uh, somebody in his work essentially killing themselves, and then the wife calls him, telling him he's a horrible person, and he's like making light mm -hmm. of it and everything. But at the same time, the more I started to think about his character. Is it that his character is just this horrible person or is it he is the way he is because of some sort of mental illness, right? This idea that he's so fearful, he's essentially like a hypochondriac, but to a more so degree that it basically rules his life, right? He is this prisoner essentially in his home, mm -hmm. which he's like, I don't, it's, I think it's supposed to be implied this house is like uh, the high end technology and everything hermetically sealed and everything, but he is a prisoner, essentially. And no matter all of the he, wealth he has, yeah. it's not going to save him from these things that are plaguing his life. And as much as he denies it, those things are still under the surface. Those roaches are everywhere that everywhere that he thinks is clean and sterile. They're, they're actually there. I think, too, that this, this segment is um, definitely the most, like, Romero-esque in terms mm -hmm. of, like, social commentary. Because it, does, it definitely feels like uh, he's talking a bit about class. Like you've got this 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 old guy who um, is you know 
clearly has probably made a, quite a lot of money off the backs of other people and doesn't treat people who he sees as below him um, as, uh, you know, as, as people. And yeah, what comes after him are roaches. And what are roaches? Like the ultimate survivors. Like they're, they're the people that, you know, or well, not the people. You know what I'm trying to say. I know what you mean, yeah. And I think it's interesting too that, I mean, it's it's very funny and very Romero-esque that um, roaches that are viewed as like these disgusting things, which they are, but that's how the character views people below him. And like you said, he made his wealth off the backs of other people. And we see that brief interaction he has with, um, I believe it's like the building super that stops by and he starts- and Yeah. He essentially like makes a racist comment about how like blacks are in that role for a reason, or so. he makes some kind of snide racist comment yeah. like that. And so he clearly views other people, especially, and it seems that he views minorities as roaches, essentially, in his view of people that are beneath him. And so for roaches then to like be his undoing is almost like a metaphor that these people that he perceives as being this thing, you're going to get this uh, manifestation of it, which ultimately is his own undoing. I mean. It is very Romero-esque, and I think it's the least, I mean, with the exception of, like, how he dies, it's probably the least of the Stephen King-ish segments, you know what I mean? I think it's definitely one that Romero had some some, uh, maybe heavier influence in developing or maybe kind of capturing a certain tone, which I think really comes in a big way because it is a very remarkable way to to kind of round out uh, Creepshow, but I mean... I love too how it's paced and we've been talking about pacing and how well it's paced. You start out with a few roaches and then throughout, I assumed like, oh yeah, there'll be maybe a couple hundred and then you see your first thousand and then you see 10,000 maybe and then you see, and it just keeps building and building and building and building to the point that the big scare at the end, there's must be what? 200,000 roaches or some insane amount of roaches there that I know it was it's apparently hell on the set oh, I, that's for sure <laughs> I, I would not want to be on that set I'll just leave it at that but uh, I love too just like how it's not just that the roaches are there it's that he sees them and then they're disappearing especially like when the lights go out and then he's like oh shit are they on me are they on me but then even when the lights come back on he doesn't see them, but then they're like in his food, which is everybody's worst nightmare. Whether Ugh. or not you like insects or not, it's just like they're in his food. He's eaten them. And it's like you can feel his anxiety and his um, and he's like barely keeping it together, essentially. And I mean, it just makes for a very uncomfortable segment. And I love that idea of like if you've ever had pests in your house, the scariest thing I've found is is not seeing the pest itself, but not seeing it and wondering where the hell it is and getting little reminders that it's, it's you know, you'll find droppings or whatever, but like, you know, it's, or, or I remember reading a, a news article that uh, they they had taken something like infrared cameras or something and they, and they planted them in 10 average, you know, homes in like the suburbs and then just took photos all throughout the night and they're in houses that uh, the, the the owners didn't think they had any sort of pests or any sort of uh, you know problems with that, and and the things that are living in your house without you even knowing it, it's just utterly terrifying. <laughs> so I love that idea that he he you know he gets the uh, the glimpses of, of of the roaches, but then he has to he's squirming just wondering well where the fuck are they now? <laughs> 
a brief anecdote. Once, uh, one summer when I was in college, I was staying at this place and we all got these horrific spider bites throughout the course of the summer. And yet oh. we never saw spiders ever. And so it was that thing where you're almost like, am I going crazy? This idea that we're constantly covered in these bites and yet we've never seen any spiders or anything like that. And it was one of those things where it was like, I almost found myself cleaning my apartment like every other day or every day because it's this thing where it's this, it's like you're being attacked by this thing and yet you never see any evidence of it. And then you start to question, oh, fuck that. Are, you, are you yourself crazy? And that's what this segment does so well for me in that at a certain mm. point, I didn't know if the roaches were real or not. I thought, oh, well, he's just, okay, he is the victim of this uh, phobia, and this is the worst, and I mean, his isolation from people and everything being removed from society, essentially. Like, it's just, this is his rock bottom breaking point, essentially. But then you see just how fucked up it gets, and you're like, oh yeah, Savini is involved in this, so we're definitely gonna have some horrific, like, body horror moment or something like that, and that is the culmination of his fear in that they end up basically like being birthed from him, which I think is a fantastic way to oh, end the segment. It's a hell of a money shot. Oh my God. It, it's probably the best money shot out of any of the segments just because it mm. literally leaves you on that image in a way that it's like, this is the big quote unquote, like scare of the segment, right? It's this idea yeah. that it's like, yep, he's finally been consumed by the thing that he was the most scared of. And I would agree with your point about this being the most, uh, the most Romero-like segment in that it's like, hey, we're going to tap into the kind of comeuppance of Stephen King's uh, sensibilities, but then at the end of the day, we're going to take this real piece of shit that looks down on everybody around him and basically give him the mo the uh, the worst comeuppance imaginable for him. That's why I, I feel almost bad for, uh, I mean, the, the sequel and then uh, the television series. And I guess I, there was a Creepshow 3, but it's kind of a, a bastardized version the movie sets the bar so high that it's it's really hard to uh to to match it i think the quality of each of the stories the pacing the the balancing of everything it's really top notch absolutely and i think that again it comes back to this idea that it all works as a complete package and i think that like when i watched it the other night for the first time when i was probably like four segments in i started thinking like well i'm like trying to like list them in order of which I enjoyed the most, but then I stopped thinking about it like that because as a whole, it works so well. And that comes back to the pacing yeah. from the epilogue all the way to, or the prologue all the way to the epilogue. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you if it's worth me checking out the sequel, uh, Creepshow 2, which I believe was directed by the cinematographer of Creepshow 1. I forget what his name is, but it's on Tubi TV right now. So I was debating uh, watching it. Yeah, I mean, like it's interesting. I mean, it's it's weird because it's it's only three stories, um, and it doesn't really have a, a wraparound. Uh, but there's a lot of fun aspects to it. The the first story I will tell you is pretty damn racist. Um, yeah, it's like about a, a cigar store wooden um, like like Indian carving that like comes alive and starts avenging the deaths of it's it's that sounds like something a white guy wrote <laughs> yeah well steve wrote oh, it so Stephen king wrote i think those segments um i mean it's it's I'm, it's of its time but now it's pretty cringeworthy but the next two segments uh the raft and uh the hitcher or hitchhiker are fantastic and are totally totally worth uh totally worth seeing oh nice so uh yeah i definitely suggest that obviously skip three it's 
I will definitely uh, I will definitely check out Creep Show too. But uh, in kind of just rounding out our chat, I guess my last question for you would be: uh, It's fairly broad, but I'm kind of just interested what either Creep Show or George Romero's films kind of as a whole mean to you. Because I was thrilled that you picked one of the. Not that I haven't enjoyed uh, talking with other guests about like his zombie films, but this is the first. Romero mm-hmm. film that I think I've even seen that isn't zombie related as a whole, right? It's this anthology thing that has this, a lot of variety to it. And it really is representative of his kind of eclectic sensibilities and horror storytelling that are just different from his, uh, his dead trilogy. Yeah. I was actually, I was so surprised to see no one had picked it at that point. I've always, for in terms of creep show, it's one of those movies that if I ever catch it on TV, like on cable, I have to sit down and, and watch the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's one of those movies that just always makes me feel good. It's the perfect balance of, of uh, horror and humor. It, um, it just kind of makes you feel like a kid again when you're watching it. So, you know, I have a lo- lot of love for it. And in terms of Romero's work in general, I think he was one of the first, um, first directors that really made me think about kind of social justice themes within horror and uh yeah i mean it's i mean so much has been said about him it's just there's there's a there's i think a humanity and a kindness to his work that um really shines through that uh i don't know makes and I'm, I'm still choked up that you know he's gone it's uh it's weird to think but it would have been incredible to see what he would have done during like the trump's presidency during uh, what's happening right now, just to, to see what kind of stories he could have could have put out there. Yeah, I don't know. He's just, he's so unique and he's, he's you know, just a legend. Yeah, he has this, again, like I'm not super familiar with a lot of his, um, his other elements of his filmography outside of the dead stuff and obviously Creepshow, but I think just from my experience with his films, it's so clear that he was such a special voice in horror as a whole and what he was able to do and even, I mean, I would think that maybe some people that aren't as, um, I don't know, not, I don't know if uh, like horror conscious or whatnot, they might be like, well, he's the guy that made the zombie movies. But especially in this last month in revisiting a lot of his uh, dead films, there's so much more than that. And there, of course, like he's the godfather yeah. of zombie movies and you always refer to him as that. But like Night of Living Dead, I don't even, I wouldn't even describe that as a zombie movie to other people. I would just be like, you have to watch this film because it, it's so important in the messaging and the performance from, especially from like Dwayne Jones and that it's this idea that mm. it transcends that, uh, that description almost, I think this idea that it's to say it is a, just a zombie movie does a disservice to the legacy of that film. And I think to a certain extent, that's true of all of the films that I've seen him make in that they really do transcend the subgenres that they're operating within and that his messaging and creep show, especially like, even if it is, a much more eclectic film in term, and he didn't write them, it still feels like a Romero film. His touch and his charm and his things like that are not lost for a moment in the film. And that's mm. that's rare. And that makes this film, and I would agree with the way you described it, like whenever you see it on TV, you would have to watch it and finish it. Like it is a, it's a horror comedy, but it's a feel good horror comedy. Like there's not one moment of it, even when you have the, uh, the Geordie skit, which ends on a bummer, Overall, the film as a whole, it doesn't leave you feeling like that. You enjoyed it in a way yeah. that you would enjoy a comic book, a 50s comic book, uh, horror comic from that era, something like that. 
um, with a little bit more probably humor sensibility to it. But as a whole, it's, I guess I would say like it's more uplifting storytelling. It's enjoyable. It's not unenjoyable for a moment of its uh, runtime. And it does that thing so well that I think um, is so rare in horror comedies where it it makes something as scary as death or some of the you know the the creatures that humanity has created over the years and takes something as 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 scary and serious as that and makes it something that it's okay to laugh at and to um kind of poke fun at it's uh it it makes those things very i don't know almost in a like almost comforting in a way and it's yeah i guess his filmmaking as a whole kind of just shows there's a light at the end of the tunnel in a way you know what i mean like that plays a big part of the kind of the uh the uh, the evildoers will get their comeuppance in a sense, and uh, he's got a very optimistic lens with which he uh, explores horror in a way that I find very very refreshing. And it, if anything, you're recommending me watch Creepshow. I'm gonna definitely check out some of his uh, more off the beaten path, uh, as it were, portions of his filmography. But uh, hey, man, this was an absolute blast to have you on to talk about uh, George Romero and uh, Creepshow. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great. And I'd like to take a moment just to plug uh, Pat's Twitter handle, which is pbrennan87. And then also you guys can check out his portfolio, which is at clippings.me slash Patrick Brennan, which I highly recommend. Pat's a hell of a writer, and it was a pleasure having him on the show to chat. So definitely check out the man's work. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.